How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Look at me. I am the sum of all evils. Look carefully. My power infests all times, all galaxies, all dimensions. But many still seek me out. A green jewel they must possess. But see how I destroy their lives. Box Office Pulp presents A Trip Beyond the Future To a universe you've never seen before A universe of mystery A universe of passionate fantasies a universe of terrifying evil. A universe of magic. Heavy metal. Mike, Nick, could you insert a bunch of copyright music we don't have the rights to? I've been sued. Good, just thinking about it. <laughs> I'm your host, Cody. Joining me for this bop in a movie about heavy metal are my co-hosts, Mike. Say hello, Mike. My dork is appropriately hanging out. As always. And Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. So you think whenever Mobius finally saw this movie, he thought to himself, that's what my art was missing. Tits! <laughs> I, don't know that, I don't know why I did that weird Italian Mobius thing. <laughs> that was very Salvador strange. Dali was like just the one behind this film. <laughs> I also like to think that was his dying thought. <laughs> I, I just really hope that's how Mobius signed copies of Heavy Metal for years. Bazooms. Like some cartoon boobs. <laughs> Bazooms. Oh, the umlaut over the O is boobs. <laughs> <laughs> the boob-laut. Oh, we're fired out of a can tonight, aren't we? Can you it's imagine Mobius doing, like, a mosaic of a single tit? <laughs> <laughs> Mike, when you say it like that, it sounds terrifying. Like some sort of eldritch thing. A single solitary tit. Teat, as they like Jimmy to call Hendrix it. In there. A teat, as the, <laughs> as the French countryside say. As the children say. Yes, they, they're notorious for going around and saying, A teat! Mother, a teat! <laughs> Why am I imagining Oliver Twist with these just foul mouth urchins? Just these 
street beggars. Oh, it's a just twist, all right. <laughs> Please, sir, I want some teats. This episode's awful. Can we just throw it out? <laughs> this is terrible. And I think illegal. <laughs> I'm moving on. Folks, uh, surprisingly, we haven't been drinking yet. But if you want to drink with us as we watch this movie, tonight's cocktail is the Rock and Rolla. You're going to need an ounce and a half of bourbon, uh, preferably an overproof bourbon if you get your hands on one. If not, eh, eh, whatever, it's fine. Uh, an ounce of apple juice, three-fourths of an ounce of lemon juice, half an ounce of maple syrup, uh, quarter ounce allspice dram, two dashes of Angostura bitters, and then for garnish, a little bit of nutmeg. So really easy to make this one. Just take all the ingredients, minus the nutmeg, throw them into a shaker with some ice, get it nice and cold, pour into a rocks glass with a large ice cube, and then sprinkle a little bit of nutmeg on top. And there you have it. The Rock and Rolla for heavy metal it turns out i was trying to find like heavy metal inspired drinks and everyone's just like use midori for the lochnar i'm like i have used midori on so many drinks i can't i can't do it anymore so instead of having a drink that's really appropriate for the film we have one that's very muddy looking but tasty mine has a, a big ice sphere in it so i'm gonna pretend that's my lochnar although it's <laughs> cloudy white instead of a glowing scary green it's nothing like lochnar honestly it's still absolute evil though but it does have maple syrup combined with bourbon and that's evil enough so, Mike, we totally have to do a commentary for Rock and Rolla now. So, so Cody you've been will have no that idea what's going on. We're going to strand you in I'm a gonna... desert of ideas for that commentary. You motherfuckers. I'll, I'll go find an actual heavy metal drink and I'll make that for the Rock and Rolla. <laughs> the, I, I checked out the second Cody said Rock and Rolla. That's all I could think of. Why the fuck are we doing commentary for Rock joke. and Rolla right now? <laughs> I like how that's how we're going to do commentaries from now on. I'm going to mention a movie someone else is really interested in, and then we're going to say, fuck the commentary we're doing right now. Let's plan for next week. I like our so anyways, schedule. I guess we're going to weird is Mad Libs next. now. <laughs> I just love the fact that anytime Cody works really hard on something, our first instinct is like we have the fucking beautiful mind calculations over our head. How do we own Cody in this context? <laughs> So anyways, folks, tune in next week uh, when we'll be doing the Rock and Rolla, and we'll be excited for that instead of the podcast we don't want to do right now. <laughs> Go to the drink in the one, too. <laughs> so, folks at home, if you haven't listened to one of our commentaries before, this is not rocket science. Uh, it's, it's heavy metal. Hey! Uh, we're going to play the movie. We're going to count it down. You can watch with us. You can listen to this as a normal podcast. You do as you please. We're going to talk throughout the entire runtime of the film. Nothing to it, right? You got it. You're smart kids. We'll figure this out. That said, uh, Mike, are you ready to kick things off? I'm mostly ready to watch Rock and Rolla now, but yes, I am ready for the commentary <laughs> Good. for Heavy Metal. The sooner you finish watching Heavy Metal, the sooner you can go watch Rock and Rolla. <laughs> Yay! Honestly, haven't seen that movie uh, in, in years. I, I think I only have it in DVD. It's been a while. It's been a long but time. I also saw it a lot, so I, I think that... That makes up for it. <laughs> I remember enjoying it. I don't have any problems with it at all. I thought it was a good movie. Where's my sequel, Reggie? Everybody, just put a pin in heavy metal for one more second. I'm God fascinated damn. by the fact that everyone fucking loves rock and roll. No one ever talks about that movie. It's true. Stop with your King Arthurs. <laughs> Give us the real rock and roll. You promised it in the fucking credits. That is true. Yeah, that, that was a bit of a cheat. Make a man, for, make man from Uncle Two, where it's just Napoleon. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Silly's off.
I'm going to count to three. Gee. After I say three, we'll press play. All right. One, two, three. Heavy metal. Yeah. Uh, I love uh. I love that logo so much. We're about to watch Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's what I think of too. Every time the classic like illustrated version. Oh man. Oh shit. I've got so many people that were part of this movie. I have to run through. Directed by Draw Draw. Oh god, I've already fucked it up. Draw Draw. What? Draw Duke. Move on. I'm gonna skip on. Uh, John Bruno, John Hollis, Julian Harris, Jimmy T. Murakami, Barry Nelson, Paul Salabella, Jack Stokes, Pino Van, Harold Whitaker, and Gerald Potterton. All directors on this film. There's there's a lot of segments, and they all had very separate teams making all these pieces. It's uh, kind of impressive how well it comes together, considering the variety of styles <laughs> and the fact that the transitions don't make really any sense. Do they heavy need metal? To, the though? Po- heavy no. metal, where the plot points don't make sense and the transitions don't matter. Oh, God, there's so many. I have to run through so many names. Uh, Our screenplay, all together, is by Daniel Goldberg and Len Blum, but we have a lot of individual writers who all participated. Uh, So Dan O'Bannon did uh, Soft Landing and B-17. Richard Corbin was uh, part of Den. Bernie Wrightson was for Captain Stern. Angus McKee was on So Beautiful and So Dangerous and Mobius for Tarna. So a lot of huge names uh, kind of behind the scenes putting this all together. Uh, cast is kind of all over the place. We've got Percy Rodriguez as Lochnar, that wonderful, evil, glowing sphere we all love. Harold Ramis uh, makes an appearance as a couple of different guys, Zeke being the main one. Uh, Eugene Levy is Captain Stern, Edsel. Uh, John Candy is Den, uh, the robot, and the desk sergeant. Uh, and Richard Romanus is uh, Harry Canyon. I think those are the biggest names probably on the list. This just feels like the entirety of MTV just watching this car. It is. This is the first yes. MTV is fucking fucking radar rider here. And the look of it. I absolutely love the look. Like <laughs> to do this, they they hung up a real car and filmed around it so they could rotoscope it into the picture. So that's why you get such a realistic looking car, but it still doesn't seem quite right. Like it doesn't blend in with everything else correctly. It's insane. The the type of rotoscoping they did on this movie is just is is very underappreciated. Like they created essentially new technologies for rotoscoping that, yeah, some of them don't quite work out because they were just pulling them out of their ass, like that tracking shot later in the film, shit like this. Oh yeah, well, this movie was animated in a fucking year. The fact that this movie doesn't look like complete ass from start to finish itself is a miracle. But the fact that it looks as good as it does, I don't understand how that was possible. It looks better also, than most Jamie, this, movies. This was, Think about that. Yeah. This this was animated in Canada in a year, so that Canadian time it's it's with the exchange rate even less than American time. This was like two months. Oh, we See, just I, um, in the time it took you to take that make say that sentence Canadian year. Ah, Boy, it's been a rough that, one. That's why they're so polite. They can't waste time <laughs> with petty bickering. I just love the detail. The car totally lands, and then he ejects the. Uh, I love shit. that so much. God, it looks so cool. Like, it's all very janky, but that's what I love about it. It, it reminds me a little bit of, like, the Monty Python whenever they would go to the stop-motion segments to kind of act as segues. And I love how so much of the animation looks different from other pieces of animation in the film. Like, there's not uh, one yeah. coherence to look the film. And I, and just to geek out for a minute, they 
there's model work in this animated movie. <laughs> a lot of it, there's actually a lot of model work, like ships and shit, but even this house right here is a model. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, like, I don't think this movie gets enough credit for how it blends its disparate styles, too. Like, it amazes me that every segment in this movie, right down to the opening, has its own distinct, unique look. Yet the entire film has the look of heavy metal. You could still find, like, any frame out of this movie and say, oh, that's heavy metal. Even when the character designs or uh, even the tone of the animation are just completely different. God, just I want to point out, we just, we just had this awesome th- scene of a guy coming out of space in a, uh, like a sports car landing on Earth, heavy metal playing, and then the guy takes off his helmet and it's a dorky dad. I love <laughs> that kind of fantasy that we're getting here. And then this cool guy who gets this cool intro is immediately just vaporized graphically. This movie has no chill. Okay, before we move any further, uh, I, I just want to gauge you guys' opinions on this. So, the Lochnar is both really amazing and impressive and scary, and also the funniest thing in the world, right? Very much. Like yeah. he's, he's like a Venture Brothers character, just this, <laughs> this fucking glowing ball screaming at a little girl for no reason. My favorite is and the it's a Lochnar, so it's kind of all stories. Talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Lochner constantly is going on about, like, I'm all powerful. Let me show you a segment where I was defeated. <laughs> I could just kick you across the room, Lochner. What are you going to fucking do about it? <laughs> also, I love how this isn't even... This isn't even a Mobius story here, and yet we still open with the most Mobius <laughs> shot in the world. That's when you know, like... What I love about heavy metal as a movie, is there's not a lot of actual adaptions of heavy metal stories in it. There's a couple... They could not afford any of them. Yeah, so there's, what, like three? Really? Oh, yeah, I think it's just that. And even and, So Beautiful and So Dangerous is mostly just an original creation. Yeah, yeah. and Tony It's like Captain Stern inspired. is like pretty much the main one. Yeah, pretty much just almost just Stern, because even um, the B-52 one was originally... The original Dan O'Ban story, Gremlins, was completely different. But right, um, that Gremlins, which fascinates me. We're gonna get into that. Yeah, <laughs> but um, and Tarna is inspired. But that's that, that's what's great about it is he- the heavy metal movie might as well just be an animated issue, next issue of heavy metal that month. Yeah. Which like, is so much more interesting. Loved it. Yeah, it's people right. who loved that book and those types of stories than creating their own. It's no different than just a modern issue of heavy metal for people who are huge fans of heavy metal. I want to point out, in six and a half minutes, uh, we've already had two disintegrations. This movie is going hard <laughs> on the disintegrations. I feel like it could have used more, and they are kind of front-loaded, but I'm, I'm glad we got as many as we This did. movie Darth- loves disintegrations. Darth Vader is freaking the fuck out right now. <laughs> <laughs> so, one th- thing I thought... <laughs> That really tickled me in research was finding out that some critics who rolled their eyes at this movie specifically hated the Harry Canyon section because it was just ripping off stuff they'd seen before in movies like Blade Runner. (laughs) And what I love about that is Harry Canyon is uh, a spiritual adaptation 
of uh, The Long Tomorrow, the Mobius story that inspired the look of Blade Runner. Right. Yeah. Well, Blade Runner, when they made that, they had issues of heavy metal around. So Scott could yeah. use this for inspiration on the set dressing. And in Blade Runner didn't even come out till 82. So this movie actually beat Blade Runner to the punch yep. by a decent amount of time. Oh, yeah, that that is true. Uh, I got I to gotta get through my facts here quick. So the editing on this movie was done by Ian Landy, uh, Mick Manning, and Gerald Tripp. Those are the only ones listed. I didn't go through the credits and grab the rest. Uh, Disintegration! Oh, another one! Take a drink! Uh, our music, though, we have one composer who did the entire score for the film. It's Elmer Bernstein, which you definitely have heard before. Just just a handful of things this guy's done. The Magnificent Seven, Airplane, The Blues Brothers, An American Werewolf in London, Stripes, Trading Places, Ghostbusters, The Black Cauldron, Three Amigos, and about like 70 other major motion pictures. So... That's fun. Another Ghostbusters connection. And people uh, talk mostly about the, the the soundtrack, but just listen to the score by itself. It's, it's honestly one of the best sci-fi scores. It it's really is. very solid. He did good work. And it's funny because you look at uh, the movies Bernstein did, and they're all over the place. Some are comedies, some are more towards horror, some are action films, fantasy films. Yeah, I could do it all. Uh Couple more facts here. We can get back to talking about this segment. I love this segment. Uh, released August seventh, nineteen eighty one. The budget was nine point three million dollars. Uh, the worldwide box office was twenty point one million dollars. So successful, but not the biggest thing in the world. Uh, and twenty years later, we would in fact get a sequel, Heavy Metal two thousand, which I want to pair up someday. Uh, with Fanta- uh, Fantasia, Fantasia. There we go. <laughs> Fantasia two thousand. I think that'd be Same a time. wonderful double feature. Uh, uh, Mike, uh, you've seen uh, Heavy Metal 2000, right? When it first came out. Uh, yeah. I, I don't know how you felt about that. I could not finish that when I tried it a few years ago. It's rough. I- I'd like to go back and try again. Mostly in memory of Julie Strain, but... Yeah. I think my, my the deal breaker for me with that one was the animation style because it, it's that weird Titan AE animation that yeah. they had in two. It's that movie Titan started in like that lasted like two years where like every animated movie looked like that and America just noped that universally. I love this segment has literal illegal aliens. Uh, there's apparently a form of drunk tank in the background where a man is just floating around like Luke Skywalker at the start of Empire. Oh, this segment has great visual gags. There's a lot going on in the background. Plus, everything is so detailed. There's such weird line work that you wouldn't get from a lot of other art styles. I think, I will say, I think that Harry Canyon is unfortunately like the one segment that does suffer a little bit. Uh, from the Blu-ray transfer, because I, I don't know, it's a little too clean for me. Uh, on the Blu-ray, I feel I feel like this is the one segment they should have like maybe just added some grime to it. <laughs> I don't know. I think, boy, God, just look at the backgrounds on this; they're immaculate. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of work that had to go into putting all this there, the amount of detail and stuff—it's astounding. It's beautiful. Yeah. I I could not imagine going into a theater. Just to, just as like a casual sci-fi fan, and just being immediately greeted with something like this, because sci-fi noir wasn't really a thing at this point, and cyberpunk wouldn't really take over for a few more years. So th- this this was very unique at the time. Like, oh my god, it's shitty New York City, but in the future, 
I've never seen this before. <laughs> Ever. Well, the movie goes through so many different genres. Like, it never really settles on one thing it's trying to be. Some are pretty much comedy sci-fi. There's this one that's that's more like a noir. Uh, you've, you've got basically straight-up sword and sandal movie stuff, like Conan the Barbarian kind of things. You get so much crammed in this movie. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if audiences at the time really knew they were going into that kind of picture. Plus, it's an anthology, but it's not... You know, there, there's different types of anthologies out there. You might have the type where it's like Pulp Fiction, where they're all characters living in the same world, and everything's very clearly connected, and you're just kind of watching spinoffs happen. You know, like Trick or Treat, that kind of thing. Uh, and then you have anthologies where all the segments are very separate, but there's kind of a wraparound to contain them. And then there are some anthology movies where they just don't give a shit, and they just show you, like, several pieces, and they don't even bother with the wraparound so much. This one really wants to just have totally separate stories, but it still invests so much time in having the Lochnar, even though it avoids having the Lochnar really connect things in a clean way that makes a ton of sense. Uh, it's fascinating to look at the behind-the-scenes stuff in this movie and know that they avoided connective tissue at every possible junction. Kind of a mistake. If you go and watch the work print, uh, which is included on the Blu-ray, there, there's a couple pieces in there where you watch it and you're like, wow, that would have been a really, really good segue between like the, I can't remember the segment right before the B-17, but like that whole segment. Oh, uh, God, I, I'm fucking blanking on that name. Yeah, basically the Lochnar drops to Earth and you get to see it kind of have an impact on evil all through time as the world evolves and wars start and eventually it transitions into the B-17 segment as as we get to it. So you get like the entire creation and life of Earth all the way up to like World War One. Uh, I'm sorry, World War Two. Oh yeah, the that was the Neverwhere Land segment. Yes, beautiful. Which is too bad. That's like, amazing. Out. You can watch it standalone. Um, got and uh, ever the lead scene on the Blu-ray, they actually colorized it too. So mm-hmm. that's that's one of my big regrets. Like that would have been so cool to have in the movie. Oh, uh, yeah, like, I'll I'll get into it, uh, like, a little later when we reach uh, the point where that would be, but, uh, yeah, it, I, f- I think that would have, that would have made for a different movie, but in the better, if they maybe, if that was the centerpiece of the film, because I feel like that would have changed the tone a, a lot going forward, especially with uh, the structure this movie originally had, because all these, uh, segments were in a completely different order for a really long time. Yeah, it's amazing how if you watch the work for it, it doesn't start with Harry Canyon, and it's... it's, uh... What the fuck was it start with? Den, which yes, imagine Den. that. That's yeah, just that's Lochnar going, think about this little boy's penis, girl! <laughs> <laughs> but it works. I want to go back for just a second. Sorry, this is totally unrelated, but I'm going to forget it otherwise. In the background, there was a giant poster for Jaws 7. Uh, again, this movie came out in 1981, so there had only been Jaws 1 and 2 up to that point. Jaws 3 came out in 1983, so they probably even w- weren't even working on it when this film was in production. It shows and yet what they're a like, oh, they're going to keep the making idea. Jaws movies. <laughs> so it shows what a like, ridiculous absurdity a Jaws sequel was in concept, even back then. <laughs> Just a single one. Like, yeah, that's really stupid. I will never forget the episode of the Godzilla animated series where they went into the future and saw a poster for Ghostbusters 10. <laughs> it's 
like, no, the future has to deliver on that, goddammit. So unfair. Uh, but I was saying that Harry not saying, opening the movie, actually, like, it opening on Den gives it more of a a structure of, like, what the Loch Nars is, like, kind of going for. It's weird the Loch Nars mm. goes immediately to Harry Canyon. Right. Well, they, they kind of get away from having the Loch Nars make sense by the Loch Nars having a line basically saying, like, I exist outside of time and space. And he basically yeah. says, evil permeates everything. I am forever. Uh, which, sure, you can find this in the movie because it's almost like a Cloud Atlas thing where they're jumping between so many different timelines that are all tenuatively connected. Like, they might be different universes or whatever, but the Loch Nars is the binding force in them. Yeah. I said I said this a few weeks ago, but the Loch Nars is ridiculous, but people shit on it a lot. But especially against the carousel idea they cut out for for the wraparound, the Loch Nahr is cool. And, and for this. the folks who haven't seen the work print, the original idea for the wraparound was there was going to be a carousel uh, at the start of the movie, the characters approach, and each, I believe, horse on the carousel was going to represent like one of the, the segments. Yeah, and... there's going to be like a taxi for Harry Canyon and stuff like that. Yeah, Spe yeah, yeah, yeah. specifically the astronaut was going to go into his house and he was going to have all of these curios inside of it and strange forbidden objects. Like it's an old amicus, like uh, from beyond the grave type anthology movie, which like, again, yeah. like, a completely different opening tone for the film. Which honestly, uh, cool idea, when you say but... Jamie, that sounds kind of cool. Yeah. But the execution should be tough. Yeah. It's a completely different stuff. movie. And it doesn't, Fit heavy metal. Uh -oh, like the cool uh -oh, thing about oh, the Loch Nahr. No. <laughs> no. Kingpin, no. Oh god, the, the, man. The cool thing about Loch Nahr is it is this you this Lovecraftian you can't wrap your head around like quantum sci-fi concept. Like it's just this thing outside of ageless time that and I think uh the Neverwhere thing would have helped this. Just the idea of it creates evil. Like, from mm -hmm. a primordial level, it creates evil, which would have uh, really brought this all together, I think, in a much stronger way. If that was stuck in there. I'm just, oh, no, more disintegrations! Uh, Mike, I'm just thinking of Twin Peaks now, where they're like, maybe Bob is just the evil that men do. <laughs> Same diff. I'll yeah, maybe Lochnar is just... I, I almost feel like it's the other way around. In this case, the Lochnar is supposed to be influencing folks. But I guess I, I had a whole point about morality I was going to say for later, but now's a good time for it. We just saw Harry kill a woman. Uh, when you think of... I, I think of anthologies, they typically have a pretty clear good-bad binary in how they work. Like, someone evil does something, and the whole anthology story is about them getting their comeuppance, Right. Like, if you look at any entry in Creepshow, it's almost always someone's an abusive bully and they get theirs at the end of the segment. Or maybe all the characters are bad and they all pay for it at the end. With heavy metal, it's almost frustrating because you don't play by those rules. Like, clearly the first segment is playing by film noir stuff where it's a dark ending and Harry gets betrayed by the femme fatale and, and has to kill her essentially and carry on with his life when they could have been happy together. But we have a lot of these segments where it's like, I don't know. I don't think things necessarily play out in the same morality sense that you would expect, or it can bounce between segments. There's no universal morality applied to the series. It's just whatever it wants at the time, 
which is fun. It's it's actually kind of interesting and engaging in that sense. You can't just trust like, oh, I know how this will play out. It's not like a Tales from the Crypt. Which, I don't know, might be the difference between like a sci-fi version of an anthology and a horror anthology. Because horror anthologies are very focused on clear-cut morality, by yeah. and large. Yeah, well, I feel... And maybe maybe I'm talking out of my ass a little bit on this, but it's always seemed to me that horror anthology absolutely gets its roots from EC Comics. Oh, yeah. uh, you look at the—I mean, Amicus got its start with its famous anthologies, just doing a Tales from the Crypt movie. And I feel like heavy metal, in particular, feels like an EC, like weird science type of uh, fan, uh, science fantasy book. And those anthologies were way more nebulous in their morality. It was never about bad guys getting theirs most of the time. Yeah, uh, it, it was. It was trying to ma- to ape the, the popular like sci-fi short stories of the time that were more contemplative. Yeah, I like how we're going into contemplative when we just had the silhouette of a man burst through a temple as he develops <laughs> huge muscles. I, I'm science putting, fantasy. I am putting air quotes over contemplative because <laughs> we are we are talking about EC comics. But uh, just more of this type of, what is man's place in the universe as I punch this alien in the face? <laughs> so, fun fact for the folks listening at home. Uh, obviously, this is John Candy providing the voice here for Den. And uh, when they had him record these lines, he was also filming Stripes at the same time. And it had, like, the same producers. So they would just literally pull him off set, like, when he didn't have anything to do. And be like, hey, get in the recording booth and say a few lines. Yeah, I think they did that with several cast members, like just shuttling them back and too, forth. Yeah. Uh, that that is bonkers to me. Just how weird it would be if you're in stripes, and then twenty minutes later, like, oh fuck, I have to do heavy metal voiceover. <laughs> and like, what I th- they they had no idea, I'm sure at the time they were carving out like two pretty big cult classics right there. You know, I haven't. I never got a. I haven't seen anything to confirm or deny this, but I just feel like John Candy was a heavy metal fan. I, I mean, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like, I, I feel it, like I feel like all of these got those guys would have been really interested, especially since this like the same publisher that was putting out National Lampoon put out heavy metal, so it was in it was in their little bubble. That's a, a good segue too. The fact that National Lampoon had their hands kind of in this, it's a lot of the same writers and and producers it's it's fascinating hearing the creative team talk about this like we really loved what they're doing with heavy metal and how we didn't necessarily understand all the stories but we figured if we were adapting it we had to make it a little funnier which it it almost seems like a mistake i think a lot of people would look at something like oh you're taking already something so weird as heavy metal and you want to just add a new dimension to it and make it a bit of a joke but it totally works here like this is probably the funniest segment for me anyways oh totally but it never feels like a comedy well, this segment I don't think would work at all if it weren't for John Candy's performance. Oh, or at least it's just the choice to make Den's internal monologue so ridiculously childlike and innocent. <laughs> like, this would just be kind of... This would be a very well-animated but boring male power fantasy otherwise. But seeing it shown through the eyes of, like of an adorable child who's experiencing it as a 13 year old boy's power fantasy. There's, there's something incredibly endearing about that. Oh, for sure. It would be, I would say creepy if they didn't provide some sense of humor to it. Uh, it just, you know, this fact of like this kid who is now a strong man 
immediately just starts trying to lay as fast as he can. And <laughs> just, again, the power fantasy. My dick's huge. Giant breasted women love me now. And it's all offset by, oh, geez, wow, this is tops. <laughs> right? Yeah, it just it wouldn't work if it was very, like, podunk serious. Like, this is a real thing I have to go through. I'm trapped in time. Time for my giant erection to solve problems. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating going between, like, Metal Hurlant stories and this movie. And, like, the st- Metal Hurlant stuff is still... It's very satirical and very funny, but it's that super dry European style of satire. God, I'm sorry. I'm just distracted by this performance. This is just bored. Uh, entertain I love me. This, character. this is it's where so Hedonism good. Bot came from, right? It's gotta be 100%. I, I swear to God, uh, it's gotta be just they watched this and went, that's the character. Make him a fat robot. And God, the amount of character that's put into the animation, like seeing Richard Corbin's art, like seeing most of the artists whose stuff inspired this movie animated is surreal as fuck. Oh, yeah. But but specifically Richard Corbin, who has such a unique style that you'd think would never play (laughs) an an animation. It's like, ah, I I can't. uh, I'll watch this in isolation sometimes just to marvel at how good it looks. It's like how how is it even how is it moving how does this work? I God I would I would love it so much if we got animated anthologies more often where each uh, segment totally. was its own distinct style. One you don't really get animated anthologies and and two if you get an animated film now it might be stylized but very often it's going to be I, I, kind of a cookie cutter animation like there's certain house styles that you see all the time Outside like of anime films, anthologies kind of yeah 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 well, and God. it is what it is. Well, God, remember in, like, the late 2000s where out of nowhere we just started getting, like, direct-to-video animated mythology stretching out, like, the lore of, like, Batman and Halo? Oh, I think, I think yeah. The, like, the last one of those was a ta- a, that Tales from the Green Lantern core movie. And then those just hard-stopped. As like that a was a fun thing. phase. Remember, wasn't it one of those for, like, fucking the Chronicles of Riddick, too? Like, they did an animated prequel or yep. sequel or something like that? Like yeah, I think just that's have a, that as a thing that would come out? That's yeah, around that the time we got the Dead movie, Space yeah. movies. Yeah, Dead Space movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, wild. Bayonetta got one. <laughs> yeah, I will... Nobody really talks about that, but that's one of the things I fucking adore about Gotham Knight. Like, the um, amount of different animation styles and tones they achieved in a single movie there. Like, that, I, I, can't, I can't believe that, that that was abandoned as as a format, because that, that, they seemed to be very popular at the time. There's a very well, strange you almost trilogy. Think too, you could just hire a bunch of different Gotham teams. Knights and, um, Gotham Knights and... Um, Halo okay. Legends. Hey, and Halo Legends. I don't know why I blanked on that. Like the most random of trilogies ever, but yeah. And then once again, Green Lantern ruined everything and put it to bed for <laughs> Lantern. Unfortunately, that Damn was you, uh, Emerald Knights. Though was like one animation style the entire time. Yeah. <laughs> I love the joke. voice. I love the voice acting in this movie so much. I love the voice acting from this era of animation 
of adult yeah. animation specifically because it's people who have no idea what voice acting is. So they're just acting. Like, you see this in every <laughs> Ralph Bakshi movie. That's why I, what I fucking love about the performances in those movies. It's just... And, it, and it's animated around that loose that loose voiceover style, which I think really helps. So you just mentioned Ralph Bakshi. Until I started doing research on this, I had just always assumed this was one of his pictures or he had something to do with it. I was astounded to realize, like, he is not in this in any capacity. That's weird, right? It feels like like he should have had a segment in here, right? It's just his thing. Case in point. <laughs> hey, can somebody just like cut fire and ice down to like fifteen minutes and like put it like right before Tarna? It would, it, yeah. It's it's like a glove. I could see him making den. I, I could see him like this being his <laughs> segment if they changed the art style. Is it you think dead? All, all I can think whenever I rewatch uh, the Harry Canyon segment is th- this just looks like uh, the New York of Hey Good Looking like 20 years later. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's kind of been a little bit of a trend on Twitter right now of just people discussing how much do you need sex in movies? I'm sure that's probably a Puritan topic that comes up all the time in film discussion. But it caught my attention because I read a great article a while back just talking about how every Marvel film is filled with the most beautiful people you will <laughs> ever see, like beyond imagination beautiful. They've been sculpted by professional trainers, unlimited budgets, and eroticism. It does make them feel a little sterile. Whereas this film is incredibly horny. I want to say almost every segment features a couple of people fucking. Case in point, I mean... (laughs) The amount of boob play in this sequence alone. Right. People always make the joke, oh, Blazing Saddles can be made today. And I kind of shrug. It's like, I don't don't necessarily agree with that. This feels like it'd be a hard sell for for a studio. Like, you want to put how much nudity in it? That's tough. Again, strange, because I think there were times in the past where you couldn't make a movie unless there was some nudity. Like, if if you went to Sean Cunningham, you're like, I want to make a Friday the 13th with no boobs. Do you think he would have been like, yeah, definitely, that's what we should do. It says a lot that the most unabashedly horny film I've seen in years was Phantom Thread. Like, that's as close <laughs> as we got. That's also a solid point because you don't necessarily need a lot of gratuitous sex or nudity to be super horny. And I think that's what's missing. You can make a film that doesn't have a lick of nudity and be horny as fuck. Uh, Batman Returns is probably the classic example. Oh, I think films should be hornier, just a little bit. As an adult, as a pervert adult, I think films should get a little hornier. I well, just going back to what you were saying about like the Marvel movies, it's bonkers going back to like the Phantom and Mask of Zorro and just seeing characters who fuck. Like they fucking have you seen Antonio Banderas? You'd want to fuck him. You're straight and you want to fuck him. And and now we're like Chris Evans is as close to being made of marble as any human being could get. He's just godly in physical stature. And yet for some reason he's not like batting away five people that want to fuck him in every movie. What the fuck is this? We it's got... funny going back to the first Iron Man, which was kind of horny. Yeah. That is true. That's probably why Tony Stark has a reputation and a standing he does within the MCU. Well, God, it took until the big Avengers finale movie for them to acknowledge that Chris Evans is very attractive. <laughs> That's a weird thought. 
I mean, well, okay. The, the first Captain America did Bruce have Banner. that moment where Think Peggy like has to reach out and uh, the the first Captain America does have that moment where Peggy like instinctively reaches out and touches, you know, Steve's chest after he's transformed into a hunk of hunk of burning man. Uh, but even that, if rumors are believed to be believed, was like an improv moment. Oh yeah, well, just kind of like it instinctively did it. Like, like oh yeah, let's put that in the film. Like that wasn't part of the script. That wasn't something they're intending to do. But they were smart to be like, oh yeah, the movie could use that kind of note because. Look at him. It's not a natural sort of beauty. That's him. insane. Look he's at him. God. He's an Adonis. Yeah, that, that is something I, I, to an extent, appreciate about uh, uh, CW superhero stuff. Like, they go overboard on it a little bit, but it's actually nice to see, like, people who are hot and horny and, and shirtless all the time and have sex with each other in, a, in stories like that. I'm sorry, Oliver everyone takes two Queen shots. We just had two more disintegrations. Yeah. <laughs> and it's weird that it took, like, uh, a, a queer architect like Berlanti to kind of inject that into superhero, into, like, uh, modern superhero media. Whereas stuff made by heterosexual people has, has become so prudish. It's very it's vanilla, weird. and I don't like it. Yeah, no. Everybody well, makes movies really... now just do, does the missionary position. I, it's bullshit. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, we all have this problem growing up where you put on a movie and then it'd be a sex scene, you're like watching with your parents, and all of you have to pretend that sex doesn't exist while this is happening, and you're just <laughs> not in the same room. life, yeah. Yeah, like, that's it's... awkward. I understand that, but... It, we've we've all watched the Friday the 13th remake with our parents. <laughs> no, but lucky oh, for me. God, I did. Then again, I also watched Starship Troopers when I was a kid with them, so... Oh, my parents had me watch uh, Starship Troopers with them. I I had to cover my eyes and turn around during the shower scene. I left. And then I I left during the bug scene at the end with a big brain bug. Couldn't take it. Too (laughs) scary. It's because you didn't like bugs. I just left because it's like, are you guys not stopping the movie? Because I clearly... It's very uncomfortable to watch. I'm like seven, so... (laughs) Good. Be uncomfortable. Uh, so, uh, once going back to Mike's Lochner point about Lochner being full of shit, Lochner, I believe, starts the segment like, no one can resist me, and then the segment immediately after that ends with the guy going, I don't need Lochner, <laughs> I have a giant dick and muscles now, this is great, I'm not going home. And then uh, Lochner is like, I'll get him anyways, here's another one, check this out. Yeah, that's a little different in the work print, like, I, I'm a little, I can't quite remember, I think the Lochner is like the hilt of a blade a character uses or something. He's way more subtly in that, uh, I believe. Okay. Also, to, to go back to my morality point, in this segment with Stern, they're currently reading out all the horrible things <laughs> this man has done. This is the worst person in the planet. Not, not the planet, the, the galaxy. This guy sucks. Like, he's the worst. And in the end of the segment... He gets away with it. Like, you're left with the impression that he's totally fine and he totally just is able to escape without having to pay for his crimes. The only person who really suffers is his accomplice who allows him to get away with the crimes. <laughs> Evil wins. Evil wins, in this case, yes. Uh, but it's almost like the film's taking a stance like, okay, who's more evil in this case? The, the guy who does all the shitty stuff or the guy who is uh, essentially fine taking money and letting him walk the other way? Like his enabler or the, the original bad guy? The true evil is for good men to do nothing, Cody. That's it? Also, I mean, in, in like it. a Tales from the Crypt, everyone here would die. But in, in this <laughs> oh, case, Stern is fine. He gets away with it. So this is a weird, like, existential satire. But um, 
two points. One, so this is totally where Zap Brannigan comes from. Right? <laughs> you, you, I was about oh, to say that, G2. Like, Zap yeah. Brannigan is, like, everyone comp- Everyone says he's a Kirk parody. That's the voice. Wait, is this- Everything yeah. else is- Is this, is this Kiff walking to take the stand? Now that oh. I think about it, so beautiful and so dangerous is just like a, a fucking cold pilot for Futurama. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, my second point was look, look at how they recreated Bernie Wrightson, but moving. Yeah, it's that's fucking weird. weird, right? Like, it, I've always it's always been weird to me that the the actual Bernie Wrightson sequence. Uh, in this movie, isn't the fuck is isn't Gremlins <laughs> like uh, th- that's the one that visually like strikes me as a Bernie Wrightson story. This this is so much like older Bernie Wrightson before he went like fully into horror. Yeah, and just, yeah. Seeing like it's surreal enough seeing Bernie Wrightson stuff animated, but seeing that era of Bernie Wrightson, what where he wasn't quite Wrightson yet. God, and the way they capture, especially in this sequence right here where he's transforming, the way they capture Wrightson's facial expressions. Yeah. It's like, that's not just we looked at a style and replicated it. That's, we are huge fans of this dude, and we understand why his art works. It was interesting it's still hearing it discussed on the, on, the, on the commentary was discussed that, like, the secret to it was heavy lines and, and capturing his cross, cross-hatching. Yeah. Which they just did with shadows and shit, because you can't <laughs> animate cross-hatching, and, like, there is no Bernie Wrightson without cross-hatching. Right, that's, that's what I, it was weird to me. Like, I, I'm most familiar with Bernie for uh, the illustrations he did for Cycle of the Werewolf, you know, the Stephen King story, where each month the werewolf comes out and attacks, and it's illustrated by him for Stephen King. And Jesus, like, how would you ever animate something like that? Or or his Frankenstein pages, like, how would you animate something with that amount of detail and, and shading and cross-hatching? So this is probably about the only way where you have to somehow eliminate all that but still get down his very distinct style. And I think you're right. Really, it's the faces that sell it. Oh, God. The only other thing that recreates the look of Bernie Wrightson is the live-action Swamp Thing series. Yep. <laughs> Also, Mike, do you whenever you're being uh, pressured over something, do you occasionally say out of the side of your mouth, "I've got an angle"? <laughs> no, that, just pops you, into, Jamie. that pops into my head constantly. <laughs> Honestly, outside of how despicable the character is, you kind of want to be him, <laughs> <laughs> just like Zap Brannigan. Yeah. Hmm. Brannigan's law. The Law of Brannigan. Okay, now, now I'm still on the Futurama thing. Like, I, how is there not an episode where Fry encountered a glowing ball that screamed at him? <laughs> they I, 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 guess it could happen. I guess the, I guess that is essentially what the brain dudes were. <laughs> now, yeah. time to explode this house for no reason. <laughs> I love this sequence so much. The music. This- uh, perfect. Uh, to go into the soundtrack a little bit, speaking of the music. One, yeah, it's definitely stacked. Let's let's go through the artists that are in here. There's Sammy Hagar, Devo, Cheap Trick, Grand Funk Railroad, Black Sabbath, Riggs, Blue Oyster Cult, Don Felder, Nazareth, Journey, 
Donald Fagan, Trust, and Stevie Nicks all have tracks in the album. Which is insane. Apparently, they're all fighting each other to get into the movie. Everyone wanted to be part of heavy metal somehow when this came out. When they're making it, everyone in the world wanted to be part of heavy metal. But two, most of the songs in here are nowhere near what I would call heavy metal. (laughs) (laughs) Which is kind of funny because it's heavy metal is the name of the anthology. And because, again, all the elements are so disparate, you would think the music would be the binding point. And it's not. But I kind of like that too. Heavy metal is a frame of mind almost more than anything else. Yes. It can be stretched over to any framework, but you got to be thinking about life in a certain way and have a certain attitude. And I think the music kind of goes along that sense too. The music isn't necessarily heavy metal by genre. If you went to a record store, you wouldn't see Devo under heavy metal, but all of the songs are kind of giving off the same vibe. So this is only a, a tangentially related, but I don't know if I'll have another opportunity to state this in this commentary. The actual like French translation of Metal Harlant isn't heavy metal, it's screaming metal, and that is the coolest <laughs> name for a magazine ever. <laughs> screaming metal. It kind of makes you wish metal. like that was the name of the movie. Oh uh, yeah. And yeah, right here, like that's this is where uh Neverwhere Land would have popped in. Uh, Hanno, like the hand would have gone down into the earth, and the Lochnar would have risen up with the vices of man, leading up into World War II, where this would pop up. And again, very weird because, as Mike said, this segment originally was monsters. It, it, well, I guess they're still monsters, but instead of zombies, gremlins, which makes a lot more sense for a World War II bomber, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird that they just end up with zombies. Comic. Uh, way with it. Yeah, all of a sudden the dead are just all over this airplane and they, they crash into a ship graveyard, more or less, where there's more zombies. And it's like, what, what was the point of going on here? I think by eliminating the previous segment that kind of showed that, you know, Lochnar had influenced everything to create this war and we're seeing the zombies as an extension of that evil and, and the it, people that are drawn less, into there, it. I think there was an implication like the swamp you see is the one Lochnar landed in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's always what I took away from it. Yeah, so they they took away most of the parts of this that make it make sense. Instead, it's just like a weird like one of the B Twilight zones where you're like, I'm not really sure what the moral of that was. What? It's a movie. <laughs> what piece. It's definitely that. I like it. I don't want to make it sound like this is bad, but it, it, this one confuses me the most because it's just happening stuff. And this is a model plane. Yeah, yeah. Uh, painted the, the black wh- with like white lines. Yeah, I. I've, after finding that, I went back and watched this scene. It's like, my brain will not accept that that's not animated. <laughs> it reminds me of, uh, you know, Escape from New York, when they have the wireframe version of New York, uh, you know, with snakes <laughs> flying into the town. <laughs> if you go watch special features on that, they're like, how do we do this? Our computers aren't technology, you know, they're not advanced enough to, to make a whole model of the city. So what they did was they just, you know, made fake skyscrapers, head of black, and then they just put tape over them, like reflective tape, and just filmed the camera going around this model city. And it made a wireframe model for real. (laughs) Because the technology for digital grids did not exist at that time. Right, 1980s, man, it's too early. God, you want to melt... You want to melt your brain. If you've never seen it before, look at photos of them filming the opening text crawl for Star Wars. Oh, yeah. That wasn't just an overlay, baby. (laughs) 
Oh, fuck. I, I think it's worth pointing out just to be really geeky about it. Listen to the sound design in this plane. <laughs> Splat. Just the, like the slight whistling. It feels like you're actually in a plane flying. It's pretty incredible. The amount of work going into the sound design in the scene. Yeah. Well, I think that's the magic of this movie in general. Just between the the random attention to details in this very fantastic movie, the sound design, the performance, there's such a mixture of the tangible and the intangible. What I would say, too, the, the fun of heavy metal is it's a bunch of weirdos who got together to make something a little edgy. So in a lot of ways, it really is the anti-Disney of the time. You know, you're making stuff that's maybe a little janky, a little experimental, pretty rough stuff that's going to rub some people the wrong way and definitely not for kids. But that's what you love about it, because it feels so different from everything else you would have seen at the time. Even now, it still stands out as, you know, being a pretty big experimental film. But also, it's not just like they have the camera, air quotes, set up in one spot and the animation moves within that frame and they don't have to change. There's a lot of actually fairly subtle camera work happening here, and I'm sure the animation must, must have been a huge bitch to do. Like I'm thinking back to the opening where they actually had the astronaut get out of the car and the camera rotates around the astronaut as he's entering his house, like almost, you know, kind of like a panning shot. And it's like they didn't have to do that extra animation. They could have just had like one master shot where the, uh, the astronaut just walks into the house. There's, there's a lot more technical know-how going into this than really would be needed for most kids' animation, I would say. It's impressive stuff. God, this fucking shot. <laughs> if this were live-action in a horror movie, like, fucking people would have gone nuts for it. Like, that's just a legitimately... <laughs> horrifying like framed shot it's like something out of out of alien yeah it definitely say, reminds uh, me of when uh, they had the alien pop out of the ducks and kill the guy oh yeah i still say overlord exists because of this short um <laughs> going back to the discussion on like heavy metal music inspiring this movie like yes there sabbath is probably the only metal band and even that was like early metal like way more you can, you can maybe do jazz. the Blue Oyster Cult song. Yeah, they have a here. Bit. That's that's more metal. Nazareth. Eh. Well, are you saying like Devo is in hardcore heavy metal? <laughs> <laughs> not for my taste. Not in this household. But like uh, speaking as a um, a bully Christian Christian's uh, metalhead, as my milk money is taken away, as my uh, along with my denim jacket. Um. <laughs> It's like the, like heavy metal, like the concept of heavy metal is a lot more kind of nebulous and state of mind compared to like just straight up rock or, or even punk. And even punk is like, what is punk exactly? You know, what's an underground comic? Uh, but, you know, Slayer and Iron Maiden are both metal, but don't sound remotely alike. They don't have the same style of influences. But they are this kind of rock jam, uh, kind of like freewheeling style comes from the same place. They it comes from influences outside of music. I think in an interesting way. Like there's a lot of crossover there of you know literary or or art styles, uh, 
people who like shit like this. <laughs> and while heavy metal doesn't have like metal bound, you know, metal band soundtrack or anything, metal bands fucking love this movie as do metal fans because it's just it's the the feeling of heavy metal it's like what it represents just like this menagerie of of strangeness oh yeah it's an attitude <clears throat> speaking of strangeness what what a, what a segment this is what is this <clears throat> i'm going to what assume most of us <clears throat> would be fine if they removed the segment from the film oh yeah that is my absolute biggest sticking point with this movie is i strongly <laughs> dislike this segment and I think, I think Everyone who if made they had, it does too. So. They're very confused. They have no idea why they made it. It's not based on the story at all. It if has I remember its moments, but if I remember correctly, I think the uh, the director at one point like apologized to the to the artist of the original story. It was like. That story had a lot of really cool ideas and moments. I don't know why we did any of the things we did with our... <laughs> Just win the space I... cocaine. This yeah. one, I think, definitely hurt. was hurt by the fact that they pushed the film ahead quite a bit release date-wise. Like, didn't they cut no. something like f- four months off of the release date that they were supposed to have? So I feel like you end up with segments like this when they're in a crunch. Like, well, we've already started the groundwork for it. Just finish it. We don't have time to polish or fix and the Loch Nahr super has no point in this. Oh, no. I think that's what makes it feel so odd. Because most of the other ones are some sort of like evil thing is happening. People are dying. This one is a woman more or less gets abducted and, and falls for a robot. And the big climatic moment is two drunk, stoned aliens crash a spaceship without <laughs> anyone getting hurt. Which this is, is the original movie. This is from like oh, an yeah. acid drop fucking Grateful Dead animated movie. Yeah. I think that's one of the reasons I kind of resent it, because I feel like this sequence makes the movie look stupid. And I think bit. it kind of fucked its reputation a little bit as, you know, being like being a shallow sex and dick, dick and cocaine joke movie. And I feel like if this sequence was dropped and Neverwhere Land was given its runtime instead... I think the cultural appreciation of this movie would be completely different. Not that people don't fucking love heavy metal, but I feel like its reputation as just a cool head movie uh, wouldn't be there. But then you also have the... There's also the possibility that, okay, you take this sequence out, would it have still become a head movie? And if it's not, you know, if the stoners aren't showing up to watch it at midnight screenings, would it have had the legacy it did? Yeah. We need to set up two universes, one a control, one without it, <laughs> that will just compare societies. For the love of God, Cody, will you stop trying to create a multiverse of madness? <gasps> it's the only thing I know, Jamie. It's the only thing I know. Okay, I went, actually, well, went through uh, this original story in preparation uh, for this, which uh, you cannot find this, like, anywhere right now. It's like an out-of-print uh, floppy from, like, uh, the early 90s or something that, like, the only uh, physical representation of it outside of the actual issue. But you can find it online. It's a really good story. 
with a really cool premise. Like it's all built around the idea that Earth is secretly the most famous planet in the entire universe and the entire galaxy loves humans and they're all watching our TV shows and reading our books and they think Earth is so amazing that they've chosen not to fuck with us because it it would mess (laughs) things up. So these sightseeing aliens just come to the planet and announce their presence just to see what happens and then they gather up all of the people uh, who have around who have nowhere else to go like criminals and gay people like j- just people who are like on the margins of society by like 70s standards and they take them around the universe on like a sightseeing adventure that'd have been a way better segment i don't know how you cram that all into like 10 minutes but just the description i was like oh this sounds great oh, yeah well the first uh installment of it ends with them blasting off into space uh, like with like this promised adventure going on that's the perfect ending to a story right. like that. Also, I, I, there, there's a sequence in that story where they're passing by, uh, they're passing through the uh, solar system, and they pass by the Sirens of Titan from the the oh, Kurt Vonnegut story, and one of the guys is like, hey, those are just a bunch of statues. And they're like, who cares? They got boobs. Like, that is a fucking deep cut reference. I fucking love it. You don't expect a Sirens of Titan reference when you're reading Heavy Metal. No. One thing I will... Oh, man, I just got distracted because I'm just I'm so sad about that segment. Like, why, why are we still watching it? It's still going. Sure, there's Star Trek in here. Why not? Um, but one thing I would say that kind of links all the stories and going back to the idea of Heavy Metal as an aesthetic or uh, a kind of binding credo I like that all the segments are really bound by action. Like in the Den segment, he, he doesn't hesitate. He sees a woman being sacrificed and he just jumps right off the building to save her. It's not like a Hamlet deal where he has to hem and haw and think about the philosophy of what is being done or where am I? What's happening? Let me observe. Characters by and large in, in this film just go out and do. It's not necessarily reflective. They're just out there taking charge. Like, even in the first segment, the, the cab driver sees a woman in need and just says, okay, fine, I'll deal with this, and, and goes through all this trouble without thinking about, you know, a woman who's probably going to betray it because there's a lot of money involved, and, like, why are we doing any of this? It's all seems shady. No, screw it. He's just going to go ahead and do it, and he'll deal with the consequences that come along. Well, I feel like the, the, the one-two punch of watching the astronaut immediately die, then going into Harry Canyon, where... The second Harry is confronted with something, he just kills the dude. Really <laughs> sets that tone of like, okay, this is a movie where everyone is always doing something and people are going to weave in and out of this narrative at lightning pace. So just strap yourself in. It's, yeah, definitely roller coaster in that sense. You got to keep moving. Uh, it's fun. I, I, I just, it's fun because it does keep going. It doesn't have to slow down. It doesn't have to make you go, hmm, let's think about what we just saw. You can do that after the movie's done. For right now, we're just going to cram a bunch of stuff in here and just go with it. You can reflect when it's done. Also, I, I do want to say the exchange of dialogue we just heard is some of the best in the movie. Like, I hate this segment. I fucking love that exchange. <laughs> now, one of these days, I'm going to come home and find you screwing the toaster. That's a line for the ages. You know, this segment, imagine this segment, not in this movie, on MTV's liquid television. 
Oh, that would be right at home right there. And this is the segment the song's in. <laughs> also, what, this fucking... This was hilarious when I got to this moment in the story. The robot fucking that girl is one panel, and it's in a montage of exposition. Like, it's just a sight gag, and they made that the entire story. Like, the aliens getting high and crashing their spaceship is just something the other characters see happen whenever they're landing on a space station, and then, like, their captain goes out and yells at them for being high, and it's, like, four panels. It's like, those two moments are the only things that make impression on the filmmakers. Also, interesting here. Okay, so we the, the big ending of the segment is these guys coming in for a terrible landing. But obviously it wasn't written and designed that way, because in the previous scene, we just watched the robots walking out the stairs into the city. Yeah, it makes so no they, sense. They flipped those two scenes. Like, that was apparently the original ending. And then at some point they redesigned it, and they're like, okay, no, no, no. This spaceship crashing gag has to be the end. Which is weird. Like, they thought that was the action beat they really needed to end on instead of the, the are you circumcised joke. It's weird. It's not, it's, it's a strong, it's a significantly weaker joke, too. Right? Like, I have no idea why they would switch those around. It's one of those head scratchers where you're like, I bet if they did that now, they wouldn't do that. They would keep it in its original order. Did that terrify you, child? <laughs> There's something. Lochnar leaning into frame is the funniest thing in the world. Mm. <laughs> oh, just the silliness of Lochnar, who has disintegrated many people throughout this show, hasn't killed this little girl. Why can't he just melt her? Well, right, I've never gotten the, the now. I've never gotten the impression that he could. I feel like he's. I've always gotten the impression that he's terrified of her, and that's why he's making such an effort to be big and scary and tell her scary stories about how powerful he is in the hopes that he can either weaken her or she'll just fucking run away. It he feels, feels like he's, he's trying to destroy her spirit. Yeah. If you notice, he gets progressively bigger. I assume he's feeding off of it. Girthy. I always kind of just took it as he, he he knows kind of in and out the future of everything. And that's why the stories have just jumped all over the place in space and time, because he's kind of omnipresent until his end point. And he's trying to change things by essentially terrifying this little girl so she can never become re-embodied as Larna to, to destroy him later on. Which, again, it's, it's like Doctor Who timey-wimey bullshit. Like, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> well, that... Well, that gets really interesting when you look at the original version with the carousel, where as she experienced the stories, she would uh, she would connect with them more and physically empathize with the characters, like never-ending story style, until with the Tarna segment, like she experiences all the pain Tarna experiences. So the stories, like again, it's still very fucking timey-wimey, I don't entirely understand what's going on here <laughs> stuff, but in that context, the stories are more things that are that are linked to her personally. Like, her and the Lockdar are kind of connected in a way that that ultimately ends with her becoming the personification of Tarna. It, it's, it weirdly, it makes more sense and less sense at the same time. <laughs> And honestly, I kind of find the Lochnar more interesting that it doesn't make sense in 
standard time. Yeah, like it, it, it ex- like it seems to come to Earth over and over again at different periods. But to me, it, it's a more interesting kind of unknowing evil thing that it seems to exist outside of all time. Yeah, out of curiosity, I, I forget. Is this actually supposed to be Earth, like eons in the future, or is this a totally different planet? I forget how this. He is calls to it uh, her race, so. I mean, that could be people could have gone to a new planet. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a lot of space travel, too, so it could just been, like, the last of the humans, someone on some other planet. It doesn't really matter. This is getting into lore that no one cares about. I'll shut up. Speaking of lore, I've always loved how that goo just made him awesome. Like, he's a Mortal Kombat (laughs) character. Just immediately pops out, like, and he's got, like, a fucking cool arm and stuff. No, it's like that 90s cartoon with football players who get sucked under the earth, all mutated. Same thing. (laughs) Also, this segment's <laughs> awesome, honestly. Just, uh, this is a very strong note to end on. Uh, I think this has some of the, the best, most memorable views in the entire movie, which is impressive because there's a lot of cool stuff being shown here. Uh, there, there's a segment later on where they're panning through the vista, and you just see these giant bones, and it's just it's so cool. It's not perfectly animated, but I like how janky it is, and it just has a sense of scope you can't get in a lot of other films. Oh, the, the jankiness is what gives it humanity. I appreciate the jankiness. I like that it's rough. I like it. It would be very weird if this was a super polished movie that you could tell they spent like $100 million making perfect. Also, all movies should just end with Tarna. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably a good thing they do because the impression people have of heavy metal is it's just a horned up film about, you know, like boys wanting to fuck big titty women. But we do get in the end, you know, a very, very strong female character who is essentially the savior for humanity to kind of twist that and just say it's not all that. Like we literally one of the best characters here is is a girl who is much stronger than all of these other guys. She's the last hope for literally all of humanity. And it's interesting that they that what they really want is Tarak, who's a dude. Tarna is just like the, the last of his bloodline. So it's like, well, we have to settle for Tarna, and she's far more awesome than Tarak. <laughs> yeah, there's weird, like, after everything in this movie, there's a subversion going on in the last segment. I mean, God, even, I will get to it in, in just a minute, the sequence of Tarna changing. I mean, a- outside of the titty butt factor, like <laughs> that is one of the most breathtaking pieces of animation in film history. And despite her being on full display it doesn't feel gross it it does it feels significantly less male gazy than the other nudity in the movie because i think it's the only nudity that's actually played as beautiful rather than titillating. yeah there's a power to it there's like a feminine power to it instead of being for titillation uh, i've always found it very interesting oh and before we move past uh these dudes I did not realize until research that Howard Chaikin designed the human characters for this. Yeah, that blew my mind when I found that out in the commentary. I had no idea Chaikin was so involved in this. I had no idea he worked in animation. Oh, I forgot to mention, in the previous segment, the human characters were designed by Neil Adams. What? Yep. Also, just how violent and graphic this death is. It's insane. No, that poor twink. Just, yeah, just yeah, covered I mean, in arrows, just like gasping as he dies. Like, oh, it's so bloody. 
there's tons of people like in comics who were either working comics then already or about to get their or was getting their start in comics like it's um Chaykin was like worked in a bunch of different segments a lot on this one but a bunch also i can't this believe shot. this shot's real still <laughs> this shot this whole thing like it, it's I mean, even the animators that now would be like, yeah, we wish we could go back and fix it up a little bit. But Jesus, what they accomplished, even while being flawed, is so cool in, in this following oh, shot. The fucking jankiness, it makes it more beautiful, I think, because you can see they are absolutely white-knuckling through this. They are pushing <laughs> the available technology to its absolute limit, and you can almost see it breaking in front of you because they're pushing it so hard. This is like with just hand-drawn animation and rotoscoping. And this too, no I computer love this. animation going on here. So far away from the, the skeletons, just setting up the geography of what we're heading towards. And then we cut to this shot where we've seen what it looks like from a distance. And then up close, you get the detail and the size of our hero now shrunk down to fit in with it scale-wise. It's like you, you wish Godzilla movies could give you this sense of size. Yeah. And for some reason... This animated segment for like twenty seconds just does a better job of showing you scope than almost any Keiju movie out there. It's it blows We've my mind watching this on a big screen. Movies. We very much lost scale. Oh god, this is so beautiful. Like this this segment here of just her fucking around flying into uh the the station is is worth the price of admission alone. Oh, and this score is incredible. Oh yeah. I would watch this if, like, again, if Ralph actually just was like, here's an hour and a half long movie, enjoy. If you made a fire and ice out of this, it would be the greatest thing in the world. I'm so glad Tarna has a comic now. <laughs> oh. I also really appreciate how doofy her, her mount is, like this flying... Looks like Petri. This duck thing, yeah. <laughs> I always it it doesn't Petri. look cool at all, but it's like the savior of everyone. Like, this thing does more to save humanity than, than anyone else, really. So, uh, can, can we all take a moment to really reflect on the fact that this was directed by John Bruno, who gave us Virus? Holy shit. That, I did uh, not fucking, make uh, that connection. Holy yeah, this, shit. This is from a bop alum. Wow. You're welcome. God damn. Holy shit. Why, why wasn't Virus this? Your Virus, Cody. Uh. Uh. Ladies at home, before recording this commentary, we were talking about virus for completely unrelated reasons. It just happened to be on sale today. You'd be surprised how often we talk about virus, honestly. I don't think they should. We did a whole episode about it. Oh, good point. <laughs> I think more people should talk about virus. They need to get on our level. Jesus, this is magnificent. I, really, I need to play this on, like, a shower speaker at some point. <laughs> just you getting out of a bathtub. Just, just, just applying conditioner as Tom. Just imagine if Batman Forever's suit-up sequence was this. <laughs> like, you still have the Elfman scores blaring away, and, and <laughs> they're still taking the time to put on the rubber suits and all that. But you have this kind of lead-up. Val Kilmer has to swim through a pool in the Batcave before he can put on the tights. Oh, I would love to see a nude Robert Pattinson emerge in the Pat Cave and slowly put on the boots <laughs> for that costume. 
so pretty God, much I, this, like, this is very much Ghostbusters the score, right? Like you kind of got that <laughs> yeah, thing going yeah. on. Uh, we all Ivan, heard it. Ivan Reitman knows what he likes. <laughs> so pretty much awesome. like B fifty and Tarna are like the secret origin of me. Uh, I'm pretty convinced. Like I watched heavy metal when I really shouldn't have been watching heavy metal. Like at a young age, and I, it took me till I was an adult to realize like. Why do I always gravitate towards characters like She-Hulk and Angela and like Red Sonia? Oh, Tarna. That's why. I think that's the we coolest really shit in the world. I feel like we should have timed this. This has been a very long dress sequence. <laughs> and all, every second of it is rotoscope. Like, this is some of the most beautiful rotoscoping ever. Why does why well, normally the you think chick too, play Tarna like going like a tour uh, for autographs and shit at like conventions? I was gonna say it kind of impresses me too because normally you think oh we hired an actress and then we base the character off of that and so we can just draw whatever the actress is doing. In this case, they literally they had the drawings for the character and then they went out to casting like can you find someone that kind of looks like this? And luckily they had like a Canadian model who was like yeah I look exactly like this. And then they basically just said, cool, we don't have to change the concept art. Just just film her getting dressed, and then we'll draw over her. It's fate. It's destiny. Also, we haven't really talked about this. But, um, what blew Jamie and I's mind when we were doing like research is, if you watch the uh, work print version, there's some early animation still in there. Uh, in Tarna segment, mostly in Den. Because they're originally going to adapt Arabian Nights. Yeah. Like, oh, the, like that Richard Corbin story. Like, we were going to get an Aladdin who fucks <laughs> decades yeah. before Disney got a hold of him. That would have been uh, what Aladdin was in animation. Was this like a straight up Aladdin adaption? Or would this have been like Aladdin, but it's also the year 4000? Uh, I have not read the story, but from what I've heard of descriptions, it's kind of just a, a heavy metal version of just you know, Aladdin, like get like getting a magic carpet and you know, doing the Aladdin stuff. But he fucks. Hmm. It's like ima imagine Den, but it's like an Arabian adventure story instead of something that's a uh, like Conan the Barbarian and uh, based. Yeah, yeah, that's what it was going to be in place of Den. And there's like still a shot of Tarna in the work print. Where she's uh, kind of like Arabian themed. Very interesting. It probably would have been, well, you said it would have replaced Den, but I was going to say, if you have Den, uh, like an Aladdin story, and then this, I think it would have been a little too heavy on kind of the sword and sandal style of fantasy. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a hell of a, like, for a completely different, uh, like, themed anthology, like, that would have been pretty interesting, but. Yeah, like I'm so happy we get, we get such thing? a mix. Yeah. Uh, also, we need to make this comment. Red right hand. <laughs> <laughs> Someone get in the cave on the phone. We've got a score. I love the uniqueness of Tarna's design with the white hair, the blue the blue streaks. Like, there's, like, slightly bluish gray streaks. Ryan Petrie. <laughs> Never talking. It's like, wow, this is really awesome. We should make Heavy Metal 2000 exactly like this, but not... Beautiful. <laughs> uh, let's instead have a character who never shuts up. 
Yeah, the exact and, yeah, opposite. That, Tarna never says anything as awesome, and then you have that character. It's like, hey, let's make let's make barbed wire even more stupid. Hey, sit down. Shut the fuck up. I I will never forget that line of dialogue being a beat in that movie. <laughs> With two, spoken to her weaselly Rob Schneider esque sidekick. Because they were doing all of the bad things. A bit of a random thought, but can, there, there's no way that Samurai Jack isn't just essentially this movie, right? <laughs> From the variety they have in that show and these kind of segments of the lone hero wandering into town having to deal with crazy stuff, most of it kind of anachronistic. It's like It feels like Tarbowski must have like watched this a couple of times, right? I I could very easily see that, yeah. And Mandalorian. I'm just going to throw that out there, too. <laughs> hey, Devo. Hey, Devo! They're not men at all. <laughs> I like how Devo gets a very, very Devo set of characters. Oh, yeah. De- Devo just completely un- uninterested, uninterested in this animated movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited. I get to see Devo at Riot Fest this September. Oh, nice. I hope they're dressed up like this and they sell the red <laughs> hats. I, I hope they have those in the merch tent. Oh, three. I love that this is a space. <laughs> the, the original Barda. I know, I know Barda was created like 20 years before. I just want to say that. No, Jamie, you have lost all of your nerd cred. <laughs> Well, I love how this is a space cantina scene only a couple of years out after Star Wars. And they were able to make it not reminiscent of that scene at all. Oh, no, totally different. Even though you have, like, the weird band doing weird music. Like, today, if a bar shows up in in a space movie, it's going to feel like the cantina scene. It's got to. People that are, they're aiming for that. That's all they want. Well, I I think it's because, as far as this goes, it's coming from the same inspirations that Lucas had for creating the cantina scene, instead of this being inspired by Star Wars cantina scene, which yeah. every which everything else that has really come since that scene is more inspired by Star Wars than the noir or westerns or anything else like that. Although, it kind of feels like we're looking at what if Han Solo was the one who chopped off that guy's arm after he was hassling Luke? Like, he just they would combined have a really hard time re-editing Han. that so he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. Their heads are fine. You know, I think if I were doing the wraparounds on this, I would probably cheat a little bit to make things connect tighter, and I would have had Den actually be the predecessor to this story. Like, just make Den, like, the actual start of this line, so you have a reason to say, oh, those two stories are part of the same, from eons apart. That would actually been interesting. I mean, it adds yeah. nothing to the movie. I think it just adds, like, a neat little bit of continuity. <laughs> no, no, it, has, no, it, it has to be as random as possible. And there was originally, yeah. even before the carousel thing, um, you would have seen Tarner, like, throughout the movie, cutting to her doing, like, just kind of random things without a lot of context, kind of building to her being called in this last story. Which I would have liked, because this bleeds into the wraparound, so it makes it feel like the most important segment. 
And I would have liked if there was a little bit more of it sprinkled throughout so we could, you know, really feel the impact of her finally appearing in the film proper. I'll get those street sharks. <laughs> yeah, I feel like every 90s cartoon villain was based a little bit on this. <laughs> Very much. Got the claw. Like this, this design fascinates me so much. He's like a sleazy space gangster who's also a Viking and he's got a power glove. And he has to fix his hand occasionally. I'm trying to remember what that helmet looks like. It's like, I don't know. I'm getting Frankenberry vibes, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's like medieval Judge Dredd. <laughs> breaking the law, breaking the law. <laughs> so, uh, so this is this is random. But I fucking adore the uh, Jack Kirby eyes this dude has with the, with the, <laughs> the, the hard outlines. I, I fucking love that. There is a little bit of Jack Kirby in this segment. I, I mean, went full on with that, like Kirby crackle along the background and stuff. I uh, mean, like, I, I said it as a joke earlier, but I can easily see the through line from Big Barda to Tarna. B very similar design, like clothing wise. T same, Tarna. <laughs> I've been there. I think one of my disappointments with this segment is. We get this long introduction of her, the beautiful flight as she approaches the place. The only action we truly get of her is just killing the guys in the bar. Uh, and then she gets kind of forced into a gladiator fight. And it feels like she gets really shortchanged in getting to show off her abilities and skill and like her, her you know, the power and the why everyone should respect her as the savior of this planet. Honestly, they couldn't do like a 40 minute segment because they just throw this whole thing out of whack. But it feels like it needed more time or a little bit more of her specifically. This is the second act. It's the second act uh, hero fall portion of the story. And then we just have to, because it's short, we have to immediately go into third act. Right. Also, the guy falling down the pit, interestingly enough, um, was a leftover from an earlier version of this where she had like a sidekick dude. Mm. Oh, I didn't know that. Who needs a sidekick when you got a cool bird? I'm going to be honest, dude. That helmet is not giving you the protection you think it is. Nah. Oh, and uh, her sidekick, dude, was designed to look like Brando. <laughs> and if you, I feel if like you might just be that making that part falling, up. He looks a little bit like Brando. <laughs> I'm not going to rewind and check that. I'll just take your word. Petrie, no. no. Anyone who's handsome in this movie has to die. You'll never make the long journey now. <laughs> God, it, it's fucking bonkers going to uh, the work print and seeing a couple of shots here and there of devastatingly handsome Harry Canyon. <laughs> <laughs> Where he was going to be this really sexy, like, Rock Hudson, like, square-jawed dude. He was going to be I appreciate the I appreciate they Homer simpson him a bit. It kind of just shows, like, they, even the people making this movie were still, like, they still partially had the mindset of how sci-fi had been up until this point. Yeah. 
Like, no, 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 like, th- this has to be, like, a cool detective character, because that, that's what you would do in a story like this written by anybody else. I, I, the, the detail to make that character just a schlubby piece of shit, like, it's <laughs> almost, like, subversive in a way. There's a lot of subversion going on in this movie. Also, we completely forgot to mention, Heavy Metal is where Fifth Element comes from. <laughs> Seems a given. Also, just just the shot there. I don't think. Oh yeah, it would have lined up. Uh, it, definitely some spaghetti western vibes in here, which is again a fun, weird little addition for what is more or less a fantasy with some uh, Mad Max stuff going on. You have the the showdown at high noon. You got the shot between the legs as she reaches to pick up her sword, which is yeah, like a rifle if it were any sort of a spaghetti western. Yeah, the creators actually cited spaghetti westerns as. Um... As very much an inspiration for this and, and kind of like the combination of tones that I was able to go for. That's like this God was dead bless. in the middle of spaghetti westerns being the biggest deal in the world. I mean, yeah, it's only like 81 when this came out, so a lot of those were getting big late 70s. So yeah. it would have been prime time. You kind of forget to, to take in account of what other pieces of art and, and films are kind of in the zeitgeist at the time? Because you kind of lose oh, yeah. perspective on that, and then it makes you appreciate stuff that comes out around it a little bit more. It's still bonkers to me that this was being animated only three years after Star Wars had come out. <laughs> right. And, well, I think and, we lose perspective on movies so easily because, you know, 20 years later, you kind of forget all the stuff that came out around it or what the atmosphere was like at the time a movie came out. Just like last night, we were talking about the fact that Escape from L.A. came out, <laughs> what, like two years before The Matrix? It's like, that doesn't seem right. Those are the world is completely different by the time The Matrix comes out. And Escape from L.A. feels like it should have been made 100 years ago, almost in comparison to The Matrix. To be fair, I think Escape from L.A. felt like an older movie when it came out. <laughs> I'm sure that's partly intentional. But yeah, it's just like even the marketing for Escape from L.A. feels like from a completely different era. And then everything for The Matrix feels way more modern. And that's insane, too, because The Matrix came out in, what, 99? So it's already actually pretty old. I mean... Th- think about I... this. Like, what came out like the same year as Escape from L.A., like Independence Day? And Eraser. Like, that's weird. The, the, that movie was made when Arnold was still at the fucking driving force of Harley, Hollywood. <laughs> so no. I like Lochnar's. No. No. Who could have seen this coming? Not me. Again, it's also confusing, though, because he's, you know, pure evil. And they talk about the fact that, like, once a generation, a new protector has to come around. So, like, you're, you're trapped in these cycles, and Lochnar, even though he's been blown up, doesn't really impact things. Like, he, there's still going to be a Lochnar either coming back, or there will always be a Lochnar, and you've just destroyed one example of him. Hey, it's an actual model being blown up because they didn't have time to animate it. <laughs> they ran out of money. Woo! Still works. Actually, I think I like it better that they just blow up a model suddenly. Just kind of, just an odd stylistic choice. It's I was not really a stylistic like choice, but I like it as one. Yeah, I always really like it when a real thing ends up in an animated movie. Yeah. Uh, like uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, when they have like an actual shot of a spoon because it would have been too hard to like animate the water flowing through it. 
I was, I was or just, just any time like a, little, like a, little a real person shows up in Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> hey Okay, uh, I think it's only appropriate that we finally bring him up after his character has exploded, but just all the props in the world to Percy Rodriguez, who was just some dude who did the voiceover <laughs> for the trailer, and they were like, oh my god, he has to be the Loch Noor. Yeah. yeah, that's a solid point. I forgot to mention that. Yeah, he's the marketing guy, essentially. The voice of the movie, and literally became the voice of the movie. <gasps> Like this mission. That is oh, how tra- the spirit's awesome is a new defender. Like, sorry, we probably should have given you some of this explanation earlier. Uh, this is a thing that happens. Well, they were expecting the audience to be very high at this point, <laughs> and they were right. I mean, with modern movie theaters, how easy you just get drunk in them? You have to design a totally different movie. <laughs> And then we get working in a coal mine for no fucking reason. Working in a coal mine. choice, but I accept it. <laughs> yeah, why not? God, I love this movie. So, so much fun. we watched it. <laughs> you don't want to immediately turn this off it's and no watch rock and roll, rock and roll? But, you know, I'm glad we watched it all the same. <laughs> I really yeah. should... They, do you think this has to be on vinyl, right? I, I would love to have this on vinyl, the soundtrack. I believe so, yeah. To the internet. <laughs> God, it, this is one of those movies where every time I sit down on, to watch it every couple of years, I think this is going to be the time where I have outgrown it, or it just, it just doesn't slap the same. But no, if anything, I like think I like heavy metal more, a little, like a little bit more every time I watch it. I would agree with that. You appreciate it oh, differently, I think, shit. as you get older. When you're young, it's just like, wow, this is so weird and fun. There's boobies. <laughs> I, I, man, I shouldn't tell people this because you're going to snipe it on me. Uh, but you can get Heavy Metal, the motion picture soundtrack on vinyl, used on eBay for like 30 bucks right now. Ooh. Do it. It's so tempting. Do it. So I, I want to I point out Open Arms, published by Weed High Music. <laughs> <laughs> Slash Nightmare. I like how they're, they're fucking still of Dan. It's just him going, oh, no. Oh, my mm, monster big. dong! <laughs> big. We didn't get this during the segment, but I fucking love that John Candy has that voice in him, because I always thought that was just a different dude. <laughs> right? Incredible. I just assumed, like, if John Candy was doing any voice, it would sound like him saying, barf, in, in uh, uh, Spaceballs. Like, I assumed that was just the only voice he could do. I miss John Candy. We all do. <laughs> way to make this sad, Mike. We almost made it the entire way through. We were You're an welcome. hour and 26 minutes in, having a good time. We only brought a virus once. Uh, so far, Mike Plug. This does crack me up that, okay, before we're making the comparison of B-17 being kind of like the movie Alien, and we didn't even make <laughs> yeah, a connection. Oh, right, it's a Dan O'Bannon joint. I can't just... Heavy metal is this incredible nexus of entertainment. There's so much stuff from comics, so much stuff from movies, so much stuff from comedy that was going on at the time. It's like it's like everyone who was cool in 1981 got together and threw a big party. 
Once again, it just it blows my mind that Stevie Nicks is like reaching out to these guys to be like, "Hey, I heard you're making a heavy metal." Uh, a heavy I metal. Could I, could I, uh, by chance, just uh, participate in this heavy metal? Just it imagine that cool happening in your life. Like if Stevie experience. Nicks called you up and was like, "Hey, I heard that thing you're doing. I want to be a part of that thing." Like, what? No, this. Only Sammy Hagar song I really like. It is a really good Hagar song, and I'm not big on Hagar. Oh, Hagar exists just to uh, just to have given us heavy metal. It's so catchy. You can put that on, you'll be like, God damn it, no, I'm just going to listen to this for the rest of the day. It's good for productivity, trust me. Just, just like the world only created Elon Musk so he could drop that car into space. <laughs> I love how kind of Tarna has there? the most amount of credits. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some complicated shit in there. I wonder how much they had to fight to be like, okay, we've done a couple of the songs from the soundtrack, now we actually have to do some score. Like, was there an argument? Like, okay, I'm, I'm going to compose this thing. Yeah, but I, I you got to give me some of the credits. Even though it's heavy metal, my score has to have, like, one segment. Can I play beautifully over shots of Tarna doing stuff? <laughs> what if there's a video <laughs> cameraman credit in an animated movie? Try playing shot. Oh, and while I've got the chance, I just want to take this moment You have to... one minute. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> I just want to... Lesbian, by get... the way. That's amazing. <laughs> amazing last name. <laughs> Uh, I just want to give a shout-out to Carl Makik, who, in 1999, provided the world's first ASMR video with his commentary for this movie. <laughs> that is, is that a fact? Is that real? Uh, yeah, the, well, the work print commentary for this is the most relaxing film commentary I've ever listened to. I love commentaries from, like, like late days, Laserdisc, early DVD era, where they hadn't quite figured out what commentaries should be. So I love about John Co- Co- uh, John Carpenter commentaries. <laughs> just super laid back, and sometimes they just watch the movie. He also did a commentary for the film itself. It's for some reason not in the Blu-ray. Oh. It's mostly from dumb. him, I think, reading from a book, so it's almost like this, from his book, so it's like this kind of audiobook slash commentary. It's apparently very interesting. I've never been able to hear it myself. Um, but yeah, it's it's unfortunately not in any current releases. I went down a rabbit hole with that guy after listening to that commentary, and that dude is fucking fascinating. Like I thought he was just the dude who wrote that wrote a heavy metal book, so they got him on there. But no, he's like a, a fucking fundamental figure in the history of animation. He, he was like one of the first importers and dubbers of anime in the United States. He's a legend. Oh wow. I'm, I'm learning so much in the last seconds of this commentary. <laughs> <laughs> That's how full these commentaries are. Jam-packed! All the good stuff's at the end, folks. Yeah, just like that, once again, heavy metal is the nexus of all nerd realities. <laughs> well, there we have it. Heavy metal! Boy, it's just fun to say. Uh, thank you, folks, for joining us. We'll probably be back very soon with a rock and roll commentary. Keep your eyes peeled <laughs> for that. Apparently. Apparently, it's just going to happen now. Uh, if you did enjoy this commentary, we have a ton more under Box Office Pulp. Uh, you can find us on Blogspots. We have a Twitter page at Box Office Pulp. We're on uh, pretty much, what, Google Music, iTunes, Stitcher, you name it, we're there. Amazon, yeah. Uh, yeah we're, on, we're, on, we're, we're on Spotify. We're, we're, we're on where Spotify. you get podcasts from. You can find us. It's not hard. Look yeah. for us. Box Go Office ahead. Pulp. Do it. I dare you. Do it. Come on. What are you, a chicken McFly? Come on.
You know you want to. Do it. You know I'm going to keep doing this for 40 minutes until you like and subscribe. Do it. To this podcast. Do it. Can that be like a charity stream or something we do once where uh, it's just Cody on Zoom just pointing a finger (laughs) at the camera and going, subscribe, do it. Do it. Like, just until we raise a million dollars. I won't shut up otherwise. I will continue. Yeah, it's not going to charity. The charity is me. (laughs) It's the fucking uh, give Cody a region free Blu ray player. God, it's oh, it's less. you imagine? There's so many German discs I'd pick up. Oh, fuck me, it's beautiful. Uh, oh, we totally can't. I'll, we can't do that now because I'm saying it. But could you imagine if that was like a Kickstarter stretch goal? We, we tried. <laughs> Cody to make gets it, nice things. We tried to make it sound <laughs> like it was it was for the show. Like, oh, if Cody has a a, a region free 4K player. Who knows what kind of movies we can cover? I I fucking love it when, like, podcasts. <laughs> no, I want to be very straight with it, though. This will not affect you as a listener. This is just <laughs> for Cody to have a, for, have a region-free fucking Blu-ray player. Oh, I just go on Twitter and post pictures of it all the time and talk about how good the movies are I'm watching on it. But you can't do it because you don't have one. I, I like the idea of you and your region-free f- player being like Mabel and her fucking pig from Gravity Falls. <laughs> would, you, would you take away Cody's Blu-ray player? <laughs> just, oh god, if I had this thing, I would just, I would immediately go buy the Australian Blu-ray of The Keep, so I can watch that. No one could stop me. Wow. I, I think we're done. Yeah, no, that's that's about a podcast. That's it. Go home, <laughs> folks. Why are you still here? Because yeah. you Why never are you you listening in on a conversation. <laughs> well, get the hell out of here. Good night, folks. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.
You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.